Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. We are starting a brand new series today. It's going to be a fairly lengthy series, God willing, uh, on the fruit of the Spirit. And it's going to be a lengthy series because this is so important, and it's the core of, of, of who we are and how we're to live. Uh, and so today, as an introduction, I'd like us to focus on the theme, which is going to be the theme of the whole series, really, uh, of true inward transformation versus mere outward uh, gifts and talents. And to get at this theme, we're going to look today at 1 Corinthians 13, a very famous chapter of passage of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 1 to 8. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. We have it on the overhead as well. There we go. And, and Paul writes this. If I speak with the tongues of men or angels, but don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love doesn't brag and isn't proud. Love doesn't, doesn't dishonor others. It doesn't seek its own. Its love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, this is a very famous passage. It's often read at weddings. Uh, and when it is read, especially at weddings, the response is usually something like, Ah, love. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> but that, that actually is not the emotion that Paul is attempting to evoke here. And the recipients of this letter, the Corinthians, no way said, oh, isn't this lovely? Not at all. Corinth uh, was a decadent, immoral, hard-nosed, materialistic city. It was a center of commerce. Uh, it was not a place you'd go to raise a family. Uh, it was more like, maybe like New York City today, because it was a place where you came for a while to make it, uh, and then left to go somewhere else. It was an intense city. Uh, and the congregation in Corinth, the congregation there, in many ways reflected the culture uh, of Corinth. And, and in verses 1 to 3, Paul's talking about all the gifts and the talents this congregation has. And basically, after all that list, verses 1 to 3, Paul says, so what? <laughs> He's saying, if you don't have love, self-sacrificial, other-oriented, servant love, then all your gifts and talents mean nothing. Look at all the gifts these Corinthians had. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, supernatural faith. They were gifted. They were talented. But Paul says your inward character is far more important. Indeed, practically every word in the, in the Greek that's used here in verses 4 to 7 to describe biblical love, every word Paul has already used in previous chapters of this letter where he's criticizing them for not having these traits. 
Throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul's rebuking the, the Corinthians for, for their disputing, uh, their fighting, their factions and divisions, uh, their party spirit, uh, and all the problems they're having in the congregation. In other words, verses 4 to 7 is a list of all the things the Corinthians are not. So Paul's saying, you're the most talented group of people, yet when it comes to your actual character, you're not being conformed into the image of Messiah. Your doing is great, but your being stinks. Your giftedness is great, but your inner character is lacking. Because in Corinth and in our secular culture today, outward success and professional achievement uh, is everything that counts. Uh, And your personal life is basically ignored, but not in God's kingdom. Indeed, we read in 1 Samuel 16, uh, verse 7, God sees not as man sees. Uh, For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in the midst of this culture that puts all, in our own culture today, that puts all this emphasis on, on talent and achievement, Paul looks right at you and says, and I'll put this on the overhead, he says, I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how successful you are. I don't even care how talented you are. If you're irritable and impatient, if you're selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed, if you're easily angered and hold grudges and you assume the worst of others uh, and hold records of wrong, and if you're arrogant and envious and unkind and have no self-control, you have nothing. So don't say I'm a successful businessman or a professional. Yeah, maybe I got a few personal issues, but so what? No. Paul says, the Bible says, the word of God says, you have nothing. You are nothing. Paul says character is everything. Not ability, not talent, not achievement, character. People, you know, people used to have this. When I was growing up, people used to have this line they would say uh, to uh, make fun of make fun of others, and they'd say, "Well, they have a nice personality." Basically, meaning they have no looks, they have no smarts, they have no talent or achievement, but they're nice. Big deal. And Paul's reversing all of that. So I want us to look today: what is heart character? Uh, what is godly character? What is this inner supernatural change in character uh, that, that God brings to a born-again believer? And I want us to look at two negatives and one positive. Uh, the, the text tells us two things that heart character is not uh, and one thing that it is. So on the overhead, first, being gifted is not the same as inner heart character. Look at verse 2, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy... And can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. By faith it can move mountains. But don't have love. I'm nothing. Now, now faith that can move mountains. It's not talking about saving faith. It's talking about the supernatural gift of the spirit. Uh, to believe for the miraculous. Uh, it's a supernatural faith. That's to see miracles come about. And prophecy. Well prophecy that's of course a direct revelation from God. Fathoming mysteries. So Paul's saying you can have miracle-working, supernatural faith. You can have a direct revelation from God himself, prophecy. And yet you may not even be a believer at all. 
or a very weak believer who's still walking in the flesh. That's what verse 2 is saying. You can have all these gifts and yet be spiritually nothing. Spiritually zero. Nothing at all. On the overhead, Jonathan Edwards said this, said this about this particular text. He says, many bad men have had spiritual gifts. Many will say on the last day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And cast out devils in thy name? And done many miracles? And yet Yeshua will say to them, I never knew you. It's possible to have gifts of the Spirit, but no special saving work of the Spirit in the heart. Gifts of the Spirit are wonderful things, he writes, but they're not the things that are inherent in the new nature, as true grace and holiness are. Gifts of the Spirit are then like like precious jewels which a man carries about him, but true grace of the heart is the preciousness of the heart itself, by which the soul becomes a precious jewel through the Spirit of God, through God's Spirit. So in the overhead... Uh, so different are gifts and talents from supernatural grace and, grace and character growth in the heart that it's possible to actually do miracles through the Spirit of God, the, through the power of God, and not be a believer at all uh, or be an incredibly weak believer. It's possible to give your talents to the service of God and not to give your heart. It's possible to do great deeds in the lives of others, even miracles, and that really have not surrendered your own heart and will and faith to put your faith and trust in Yeshua as your Lord. To not give the throne of your life over to Him. That's how different gifts are from spiritual growth and grace and spiritual character and the fruits of the Spirit. Now, two questions always arise at this point. First, people ask, well, if that's true, why would God ever let his power work through people who weren't even believers at all? Uh, kind of like Balaam, right? Uh, or, or very weak believers. And the answer, I think, is because the Lord is a very kind and gracious and loving God who causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust alike. And it would even be a more terrible world than we already have if mature believers are the only ones in the whole world who have the ability to do these things, to, to lead, to counsel, to communicate effectively, to teach, to help others. And the second question is, how, well, how is this even possible? How is it possible to, for people to have the gift of tongues, uh, the gift of prophecy, the, the gift of knowledge, mountain-moving faith, uh, the ability to do miracles, and yet have little to no saving grace in their own life? And the overhead... Here's how it's possible. And this is a great warning for us. It's possible to mistake your talents for character. It's possible to mistake a gift operation of the Holy Spirit for the operation of grace or fruit or holiness in the heart. You mistake gifts for grace. You mistake your talents and achievements for character. Here's an example. Imagine a man who hates his mother. Just hates her. And it's distorting his whole character. Uh, it's distorting his relationship with women. Uh, and beneath all his bad relationships is this ground note of self-pity. And it permeates his life. It's like a bass note. Uh, you feel it. Uh, you feel them more than you hear them. And there are people who have these ground notes of self-pity that run through their life 
And a little voice in their hearts that's always constantly saying, nothing ever goes right for me. And this unconscious ground note will distort your life. Maybe it manifests in your inability to control your temper, for example. Uh, and you fly off the handle very easily. Or maybe you get downcast too easily when things don't go your way. You're not resilient. You don't, you don't know how to bounce back. And it's all be- because of this, this ground note of self-pity. And let's say now, this is this guy in my example. Let's say he now becomes a believer. What happens? Well, one thing he can do, the good thing he can do, is the hard work of character change. Uh, to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. To work out this new reality of the Spirit in his life, more and more, working it into his life through the power of God. And now with this new sense of God's love, this guy now has the emotional wealth to admit things about himself for the first time. To admit his hatred of his mother. To admit his self-pity. To confront it. And he can now bring the love of God and Yeshua uh, into his life, into his heart, in a new, sustained way. He can now sense the love of Messiah in his heart. Uh, uh, at, at the very moments when self-pity tries to rear its ugly head. So, so it's, uh, now he can uh, destroy and defeat and vanquish it. And he can thus cooperate with the Holy Spirit to change his character. That's one thing he can do. Or, the opposite, instead he can let this happen. Let's say he comes to a congregation. Uh, they find out he's got some gifts and some talents. Uh, maybe a teaching gift or, or a music gift or an evangelism gift. And the next thing you know, he's on the Bible study teaching team. Or he's on the music team. Or he's on the evangelism team. And he's doing well. Uh, and God's using him. And the people all appreciate him. And everyone therefore assumes, wow, this guy is really walking closely with the Lord. God's using him. And the guy himself, the guy thinks to himself, I must really now have godly character. Uh, therefore, I must be walking with the Lord. Therefore, the grace and love of God is changing my heart. No, not necessarily. We can't assume one implies the other. We constantly mistake talent for character. And the two are not the same. So the first thing Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that it's possible to do, 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 and yet be nothing. You can be very active in ministry and yet have deep character flaws. So we need to examine ourselves and ask the Lord to search our heart and to, the Lord to show us if there's any offensive way in me. Ask the Lord, Lord, am I hiding behind my outward gifts and talents? And yet inwardly, I'm joyless. I'm always feeling slighted. My ego is easily offended. I lack kindness and gentleness. I have little patience or self-control. I'm irritable. I tend to be harsh and lose my temper. I keep records of wrongs. I do give up. I don't persevere with long-suffering. Search me, Lord. So watch out, because it's natural for us to mistake gifts for grace. To mistake character, I'm sorry, to mistake talent for character. That's why this new series, this new series we're starting today, we're going to look in depth at all the different aspects of a supernaturally changed heart over the next several months. So on the overhead, number one, inner hard character is not the same as gifts or talents. Number down, number two, inner hard characters also isn't just being good. Because verse three gives us another list. 
And this list is a very different list from verse 2. So look at verse 3, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but don't have love, I gain nothing. In verse 3, Paul's answering a different kind of person than he was addressing in verse 2. So here's someone who says, yeah, I agree. Tongues and prophecy and miracles and all that glitz and special effects. That's not what we really need. What we really need aren't these gifts and talents. Uh, for the, there are no gifts and talents listed here in verse 3, if you look carefully. But what we really need is morally virtuous behavior. Uh, he gives everything to the poor. Uh, suffers physical hardship. Even becomes a martyr. Uh, so we have a list here of virtues. Uh, generosity. Helping the poor. Self-denial, self-sacrifice. And yet Paul takes this virtue list and slams it just like he did the gift list. Paul says you can have all that and still be nothing. Now, this is confusing. Many people will say, okay, yeah, I understand the gifts. Gifts don't matter. But what really matters is virtuous behavior. But here's what Paul is doing, and it's amazing. Paul's going deep. And he's critiquing the standard virtue lists of his day. You know, Aristotle's famous virtue list on the overhead had these virtues listed. In Aristotle's famous list, uh, courage, liberality or generosity, honesty, friendliness, modesty, justice, prudence. On the overhead here. But if you look carefully at these classic virtue lists, you, you, you'll see they're still not down to the heart level. They're not. Because, because these are behaviors that can be done for two very different motives, for very different, two different very kinds of heart uh, attentions. So Paul's saying it's possible to be incredibly virtuous, sacrificing your time, sacrificing your money, sacrificing your life for others, and still be nothing. Now, how can this be? There's two key points here. First, notice that, that he doesn't say this time, I am nothing, like he said in verse 2. But here in verse 3, he says, I gain nothing. And the Greek word used here means, means to count. It's an accounting term. So we could translate this verse 3 to say, you could do all these things and still not count. Or you could do all these things and not merit anything, not earn anything. Paul says in verse 3, you can die for someone. You can sacrifice your money for someone. Uh, you could sacrifice your time for somebody. And yet it be without love. Okay, well, how do you define love then? In the very famous popular novel, Pride and Prejudice, the middle sister of the five Bennett sisters is Mary. Mary's the one who's the most overtly religious. She's always lecturing everybody about their Christian duties. She's always exhorting others about charity and loyalty and honesty. And she seems to be the most moral and virtuous of all the teachers. But the author, Jane Austen, she very sardonically and shrewdly says this about her. And we have in the overhead. Mary, in consequence of being the only plain one, the only unattractive one in the family, worked especially hard for knowledge and accomplishments of which she was impatient for display. It gave her a pedantic air and a conceited manner. Do you see what she's saying? Whenever Mary's talking to others about biblical truth faithfulness, trying to tell her, lecture her sisters about how, how, uh, how to be good people. Why is she doing it? What's the motive behind it? What's the heart? It's not about truth. 
It's not about honesty. It's not about Yeshua faith. It's not about God. It's not even about her sisters. It's about her. She feels inadequate. She feels, I don't count. She feels plain. She feels average or below. So what's she going to do? She's going to be a good person. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying, if you do good things, behaviorally loving things, serving and ministering to people, if you do good things to get a sense of worth, to say, now I count, now I know I'm somebody, then your good deeds are ultimately worthless. They profit you nothing. They don't please God. They don't enhance your own character. You can say, how can this be? Okay, let's take a common sense definition of love. Love is to serve other people instead of yourself. Okay, not a, not a bad definition. Here's my question on the overhead. If the reason you're kind to someone, if the reason you're generous to someone, if, if you're doing it to count, if you're, doing, if you're doing it to say, now I know God loves me, or and or, now I know that I'm a good person, and or, now people will see me as being a kind and generous person, then it's all about you. It's about you. There's no real love in it. This is sort of Paul's great spirit-inspired insights. It's possible to be, it's possible to be loving without love. Loving in your outward behavior, but in your inward heart, it's all about you. It's all about you. Now, how do you know if that's the truth about you? How do you know if all your service to others and the things you're doing for others is really ultimately all about you? How do you know that it's not about God? It's not about the person. It's not about the truth, but about you. How do you know? How do you test yourself? Well, there's two things here the text tells us. The two possibilities are, no matter how good and kind and benevolent you look to others, or what a great ministry you have, first, notice this list in 1 Corinthians 13. It doesn't say, the list in verses 4 to 7 about love, this great list about love, it, notice it doesn't list the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say, love doesn't murder. Love doesn't steal. Love doesn't rape. No, love doesn't rob banks. no. This is a much more subtle and penetrating and discerning list. This is all about character. This is the stuff below uh, and deeper than just outward rules and external behavior. This is how you are with people in private. You can give your money away. You can be honoring all the rules. You can be, you can be this good person in so many ways. And yet, are you impatient with others? Do you get irritable and harsh? Are you vain? Are you self-centered? Are you driven? Are you always getting your feelings hurt? People who know you in private, who interact with you behind closed doors, they can see it. Your service isn't being driven by love. Your moral virtue isn't being driven by love. It's all about you. That's the first test. The second test, the second thing Paul says is that there's a kind of loveless service and goodness, and the test for it is in verse 8. Real love, real love that's not based on you doesn't give up. Look at verse 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails. 
Literally, it says in the Greek, love doesn't fall down. Uh, love doesn't fall apart. Let me give you two examples. Paul says it's possible for you to look like you're in this incredibly loving relationship, and yet it's all about you deep down. And he says the way you'll know it's all about you is that sometimes there are these relationships where all you, you have all this love, Sydney, you have all this love, and you have warm feelings for the person, and you're doing so much for them, and then all of a sudden, it's over. Love doesn't last. Love does fail. Indeed, uh, it often turns, turns, into this, turns into disdain. Uh, it turns into hate. Uh, and it turns on a dime. Just like that. Or at least it turns into indifference. Just like that. How is that possible? Here's two examples. There's a family where one spouse is a drug addict or an alcoholic. The other spouse is not. And for years and years and years, the healthy spouse sacrifices everything for the unhealthy spouse. Suffers for the unhealthy spouse. Does so much uh, for, the, for the unhealthy spouse. Uh, and, and, and the pain is terrible. Uh, and the healthy spouse looks at, at the messed up spouse and says, You don't know how much I love you. You don't realize how much I've done for you uh, for years and years. And the healthy spouse is constantly feeling loving towards the, other, the unhealthy spouse and giving love. But research shows, in a shockingly high percentage of times, if the addict gets over it, if he stops drinking, if he stops doing drugs, if he overcomes his addiction, the marriage falls apart. A surprisingly high percentage of times. Why? Why would the healthy spouse suddenly find it difficult to connect with and to love the formerly messed up spouse? Because the relationship ultimately was about her need to be a savior. Her need to be needed. Her need to be indispensable. And so this incredibly, uh, this incredible love the healthy spouse had for the messed up spouse, where she's convinced, I really must love him. Look what I'm doing for him. Oh, look what I've gone through. Look what I've sacrificed. Look what I put up with. Look how much I gave and gave and gave and gave. And all of a sudden, the messed up spouse gets better and the healthy spouse finds that her love is gone. What was it about? It was about her need to be needed. Paul, in this first example, says, don't mistake being good, being virtuous, being sacrificial, and being committed, thinking that's the same as a supernaturally changed heart. It's not. It's possible to do all these things and have no love. No real biblical love, because Paul says love never fails. Here's a second example. Two people fall madly in love. They say, we're utterly, utterly in love. And the years go by, and one of them loses their looks. Gains weight, doesn't take care of themselves, looks different, doesn't look the same anymore. Doesn't, and, and the next thing you know, the marriage is over. And there's a divorce. Why? What was the love about? The spouse, when she was good-looking, met a need. The need for the guy to say, well, I've got a woman who looks like this. She looks really good. That's the kind of spouse I've got. Look at me. Pretty impressive, huh? But the truth is, the kind of spouse, that this good-looking spouse, was meeting a need. And so when she stopped meeting the need... The love failed. 
But it wasn't really love. It was not biblical love. It was all about you, the guy, wanting a trophy wife. It was not biblical love. So we see these two things that a supernaturally changed heart is not. Inner heart character, on the one hand, is not being gifted. And it's also not being outwardly good. So what is it? It's being graced. So number one, it's not being gifted. Number two, it's not being good. Number three, it's being graced. What do I mean, being graced? On the overhead. First, inner character comes from a complete change in the way you approach God. We see this back in verse 1. You think I skipped verse 1? It's back in verse 1. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul's talking here about a common a practice at the pagan temples in Corinth uh, and throughout the Roman Empire. All this pageantry and noise was a standard part of pagan worship. Uh, their worship was a spectacle. It had gongs and cymbals and, and epic pageantry. Why? Because the whole point behind pagan worship was to impress the gods. Uh, and the gods' attention and favor had to be attracted, uh, had to be merited. And so what Paul's saying here is that it's possible uh, to, be, to be associated with messianic faith, uh, to join a congregation, uh, to speak in tongues, uh, to prophecy, to fathom mysteries, uh, to, to read the Bible, to be active in ministry, to obey the Torah, be doing all, doing all these things without a fundamentally changed relationship with God, to still be a pagan. In other words, you can read your Bible and go to your Bible studies and talk, talk about Yeshua as, a way, as your way of clanging a cymbal and sounding a gong. As a way of saying, look, I count. Look, 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 God. Don't you want to bless me now? Paul's saying it's possible to be very Christian-y, you're very messianic, and not be a real Yeshua follower. It's possible to be involved in all the trappings of Messianic Judaism or Christianity and not recognize the absolute, fundamentally, diametrically opposite way in which Yeshua faith works from every other religion in the way in which you approach God. And, that, and that's why Paul's saying it's incredibly easy, like in these pagan religions, to come in and say, I do all these great things. Why? So that I will count before God. When biblically, it's the opposite. You're supposed to count and to know you count with God and know who you are before you do all these things. You're not supposed to be helping others as a way of meeting some inner vacuum that you that you have. You're supposed to be helping others as uh, not as a response from emptiness, but as your response from fullness, as an overflow of your new creation heart. Okay, well, how do you do that then? And the answer lies in verses 4 to 7. Now, almost all the English translations of verses 4 to 7 give you adjectives. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, typical translation. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not rude. Adjectives. But, but in the actual Greek, everything in verses 4 to 7 is actually a set of verbs. Because in these verses, Paul is personifying love. Here's a more literal translation First uh, Corinthians thirteen four to seven on the overhead. Love suffers a long time with patience. See, it's a verb. It's suffering. Love shows a verb. It's showing. Love shows kindness. Love doesn't burn with envy. 
It doesn't get inflated with its own importance. It's never rude or ill-mannered. Rather, love joyfully celebrates truth, gives all kinds of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. Love is a verb. What Paul's doing here is not giving us a set of guidelines and adjectives saying, if you want to be a loving person, you've got to be like this. Yeah, I know that's how we always read it. I know that's what we, we always think it means. And then overhead, actually, he's giving us a person here. He's showing us a person who is love itself. Love is someone who's patient and suffers long. Paul is personifying love. And there's two reasons why he's doing that. Because he's trying to answer the question, if being good and being gifted isn't, isn't the answer, then how do I get this inner sense of fullness that sends me out in a whole new way into the world to do the things, not out of a sense of emptiness, but out of a sense of fullness. Uh, not doing it because it's all about me, but because it's about them. How does that happen? Paul says you have to see love as a person. On the overhead. This means two things. Number one, Paul says you'll never be a loving person if you think that love is a set of guidelines you've got to pick up and somehow breathe life into. Oh no. Love is a living, active power that has to get a hold of you and breathe life into you. Love is a power. Love is a personal, living, active power. It has to come into you from the outside. It has to, has to encounter you. It has to come upon you. Otherwise, you'll never be able to do, do any of this. That's number one. And number two, most of all, love is a very specific person. Paul is ultimately thinking about Yeshua here. In the, beginning of, in the beginning of the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's dealing with all these character flaws in the people, in the Corinthians. Uh, there's fighting and jealousy, there's envy, pride, a poverty spirit and factions and strife and bickering. And Paul immediately tells them, you're forgetting the cross. Paul says, how can you be so proud if you remember the cross? How can you be so emotionally needy if you would remember the cross? So he writes this in the first chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12 and 13. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. Uh, so another, I follow Messiah. Is Messiah divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you immersed in the name of Paul? Paul saying you're never going to be able to become this loving person, but is trying to, to live up to a specific definition. Instead, he says, think of the cross. He says, was Paul crucified for you? No, Yeshua was. He says, if you're ever angry or spiteful or impatient or fighting, you've forgotten. You've forgotten. On the one hand, the cross humbles you and causes you to say, look, how can I be proud when it took the death of the Son of God to save me? That's how bad I was. But on the other hand, the cross also lifts me up and causes me to say, look, how can I be so emotionally needy why do, I, why do I care what people think about me? Why do I need a claim and a recognition? Why do I need to show I'm always right when the Son of God himself died for me? So Paul starts in the, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians saying, the only way to deal with your character flaws is through the cross. Now here in, verse 13, in chapter 13, 13 chapters later, 
Paul does not directly mention the cross, does he? He seems to be dealing with their problems without the cross. Oh, really? Where is the ultimate example of suffering patiently? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Charles Spurgeon, on the other hand, Charles Spurgeon writes this. On the cross, Yeshua the Messiah, completely embodying this love, looks down at the people he's dying for, the very people who are completely embodying the opposite, and yet he stays. He stays on the cross for them. Where do you get the ultimate example of does not keep a record of wrongs? The cross. Luke twenty three thirty four. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Where do you see the ultimate example of love never giving up? Look at Luke twenty two forty two. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And here's the key. If you see this description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 merely as a guide, merely as a guide for your behavior, you'll never get there. But if you see it as a picture of Yeshua, it will change you. On the overhead, if you see this description not as a love you have to do first, but a love that was done for you and to you first, if you see Yeshua pouring himself out into you, that will change everything. On the overhead, Jonathan Edwards gives this great definition of love. He says, love is putting your happiness in the happiness of the other one. If I love someone in order to make myself happy, that's not love. Not at all. If I say, I love you, and that makes me happy, because now I've got this great loving spouse. Or, I love you, and that makes me happy, because now I know I'm needed. Or, I love you and that makes me happy because now I can think of myself as a loving type of person. Or, or I love you and now God will take me to heaven and answer my prayers. Jonathan Edwards says, none of that is love. Why? Because again, it's all about you. And the overhead. But here's what he says love is. Love is when you you put your happiness in the happiness of the other person. So that the other person's happiness is the only happiness you have. If the, if the, if the other person's joy, it's the other person's joy that is your joy. There is no other joy that you want. And that person's delight is your delight, and there's nothing else. And you say, well, that's incredible. Where am I ever going to do that? Let me ask you this. What do you get a man who has everything? Yeshua owned the whole universe. So what if Yeshua comes down and says, I'm about to die for you. What would you say? Would you say, oh, Lord, how can I ever repay you? What do you mean I repay him? What profit is in it for him? And yet we read this, Isaiah 62, verse 11. Behold, your Savior comes and his reward is with him. His reward? What is his reward? This better be a pretty big reward for the Son of God, huh? (laughs) And the answer is this. The next verse, Isaiah 62, verse 12. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. They will be called. Do you see it? Yeshua the Messiah, his reward is simply your joy. He put his happiness into your happiness. That's the only happiness he had. What else could he obtain as his reward that he didn't already have? 
If you see him loving you like that, that completely, then you're going to be able then to turn around and do it for others. You can never produce this kind of love on your own. But you could pass it on if someone already gave it to you first. And Yeshua has done that. So you have to, you have to change your approach to God. You've got to see 1 Corinthians 13 ultimately as the source of this love is that it is Yeshua dying on the cross for you. That's what this chapter is all about. And then you'll be graced by that and that will fill you up and then enable you to move out into the world in a whole different way. That's how the grace of God works itself out into your life. This is how you grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Yeshua. So don't mistake gifts for grace. Let me ask you as we close. Are you growing spiritually? Ask yourself, am I more a, a more joyful and self-controlled and patient person than I was a year ago? Am I kinder? Am I more humble? Is my prayer life better? And most of all, please don't mistake even being good from actually meeting and knowing Yeshua and being born again from above and having his grace in your life and empowering your life. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, oh, we thank you for this message today from your word. Help us, Father, to understand how dangerous it is for us to treat our talents as if they're character. Or even to treat moral good behavior as if that equals a changed life. It's so easy to mistake talents for inner character and a supernaturally changed heart. To mistake gifts for grace. To mistake outward behavior that's really all about me. For inner heart transformation and other-oriented, self-sacrificial love and true humility. Because love is a verb. Love is a personal, living, active power that has to come from the outside into us. And love ultimately is a person. It's you, Yeshua. So Lord Yeshua, help me always to be gazing at the cross. The cross humbles me. And destroys my pride. Uh, because it shows me that I was so wicked and so unworthy that you, Yeshua, the Son of God, had to die for me. But the cross also affirms me. Because you, Yeshua, love me so much that you were willing to leave heaven and willing to die for me. So Lord, help me today to remember your cross. The tree of death that became an claim, A tree of life. Help me to see this incredible description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's ultimately a picture of you, Yeshua, pouring yourself out for me. And let that supernaturally transform my life. For I pray this all in your holy name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.